0: So I always used to say when people came to Meliodora and they said, oh, I want you to design this for me. I said, I can help design the skeleton within which you might create living permaculture. I cannot design permaculture for you.
1: greetings and welcome to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and this is episode number 11. In today's episode, I'm going to share something a little different from the previous episodes, And that last week I had the great honour and privilege of co-facilitating a four-day workshop on the topic of advanced permaculture planning and design process with permaculture co-originator David Holmgren. And on the second day of that course, I had the thought to put a, a microphone on as I shared a, a chat about my journey with permaculture design process as a, a lens or a gateway into that, that topic in general. And after I'd shared something, uh, David responded, and I thought, damn, I felt very disappointed that I hadn't anticipated that and, and thought to record, have a microphone on him too. So, but I made peace with that, that loss. And then when I was listening later to the recording, I realized that with a bit of mucking around, his what he said could be made quite audible. The second time David responded, though, I did make sure I was there and got the mic onto him. So the first time you hear his voice, the audio quality will be uh, not quite so good, but still quite audible. And the second time, it'll be a lot better. Thanks for bearing with me on that. And I'm really excited to share uh, something of the conversation that's been happening between David and I, and I hope you enjoy and I'll check in with you again at the end. Okay let's get started. So I'm going to invite you to sit down get comfortable and listen to me talking for about half an hour. (laughs) I'm going to start through the medium of of sharing something of my personal journey with permaculture design but I'm very I'm conscious that I don't want this to be an exercise in self-indulgence so much as something to kind of frame moving into the space of some, some things I'd like to share with you that have been really pivotal discoveries or realisations I've had along the way of my journey with permaculture design process. I believe deeply that although they'll continue to evolve, that there's some value there. I'd like to find ways of being able to bring you into, into the space where we can survey some of this territory together. And beyond that, I'm excited at the possibility that some, who knows all of you, might find a excitement inside yourself to be part of this journey or to discover that you're already on the same journey, I have a feeling that some of us here will, will be staying in touch beyond this course, in terms of our respective places in the permaculture universe in the coming years. So I I grew up by a nice lake in New Zealand. It's called Lake Okataka, which means little bowl of sweetness. So I grew up next to a little bowl of sweetness and had a, Lovely, relatively sheltered, relatively privileged uh, upbringing there. I had aspirations at one point to be a cat burglar. But that didn't come to anything. And then I thought about being an electrician until I discovered I was red-green colour blind. And colour blind electricians are not a... (laughs) Not good. Not a good idea. So we're coming to the end of the scores, what, what the heck am I gonna do? And some friends were going off to university and I got pulled along in that direction. And and I started studying psychology and sociology. I got bored with sociology, focused on psychology uh, and, a, and a bachelor's turned into a master's turned into a, a PhD, which brought me over to Monash University. And that's how I ended up in Melbourne. And along the way, I got, I got into it, I got excited. And, and during my PhD years, I, was, I had a lot of freedom, a little office and resources, and there was a big library. I had an amazing supervisor, Vicki Lee, was an amazing mentor, and I got to follow my nose. And and if you get to the PhD stage and you really, I think if you really follow your nose and your interests, you end up going to a place that's deeper than the splits between psychology, sociology, economics, philosophy, anthropology, blah, blah, blah. So I was starting to swim around beneath some of those segregations and tap into some of the the narratives and stories and ideas that were going on down there. And one thing I honed in on on my PhD work was the idea that certainly psychology and pretty much all the academic disciplines suffered from a bad case, and I haven't, this is a word I'm just making up right now, a bad case of dichotomitis. Yeah, the the idea that, for example, in psychology there were different sects that argued with with each other and said, no, we're right. And the other one said, say, no, you're wrong and we're right. The name of two of those sects were Cognitive Psychology and Behavioural Psychology. And if you're up close it could seem like they were saying opposite things, completely different things. But if you dug down deep enough, they were, all whist- they were all whistling or singing to the same tune. And everything they were doing and saying was based on certain very deep cultural level dichotomies or dualisms or, f- or false splits. Where um, th- things that belonged together had been intellectually torn apart. And then suddenly set up this false insoluble problem of how do we get these things back on working terms again i'm talking about things like subject and object organism and environment head and heart heart and hand how do we get these things on working terms and you'd see talk about interaction there's an interaction between an organism and environment starting from the, the assumption that they're separate things and we have to figure out somehow how that we can connect them bring them back together. And I was starting to delve into the work of some philosophers and, and lines of thought that were saying, these are insoluble problems. Basically what we're doing, we're smashing a mirror to, into little fragments and then we're trying to glue it back together again. It doesn't work. You're gonna, there's still going to be, the, the cracks are going to be there. Why don't we go back enough forks in the road to a point where those splits hadn't yet been made and say, well, what would it look like to move, move from that basis? From the basis that organism and environment are a no it, it's completely meaningless for them to be to think of them as separate things they they imply each other as do subject and object as do thinking and doing as do science and common sense or ordinary life all kinds of other things so i was realizing that our culture and all our academic disciplines were just rife with ha- having unwittingly bought into these false splits and also caught up with deeply held ideas coming from people like Newton and Descartes about sometimes called mechanism or atomism or individualism, the Newtonian conception of science where space-time is kind of an empty container inside which all these little particles bounce around. And we understand the universe by conceptualising it as a gigantic machine. And the way to understand a gigantic machine is to break it apart into its cogs and wheels and pulleys and conveyor belts and, and penetrate and understand those and then try and bring them click them all back together again which works quite well with machines <laughs> and the idea was let's pretend everything's like that let's pretend a tree is like that let's pretend an ecosystem let's let's pretend the whole world is like that but over the decades and centuries we forgot we were pre- pretending and we started to to perpetuate this cultural wide delusion that was how things actually were that's inside every one of us we imbibed on our mother's milk you know as babies as, as we were socialized some of these ideas entered us before we, we were even conscious of them and it's no small thing to go there and to realize that and to unpack them and there's only so far you can go it's kind of like trying to repair a ship on the open sea one board at a time but you try and patch up this leak and another leak sneaks up behind you or you know you kick this problematic assumption out the front door and then it sneaks back in one of the windows. Anyway, as you're getting the impression, I got a bit bit disillusioned with it all. Did I want to participate on this track toward being an academic, psychologist, philosopher, where effectively I'd be perpetuating all these these false splits? And one of the high-level ones that stood out with me was the split between theory and practice. Between what we know and what we do. Which as I looked at these academics 20 years, 30 years down the track from me, with their huge brains, their huge heads, and either their tiny little stick bodies or, or sometimes their large um, bodies that, that they were neglecting as they went up and down the escalator and all the rest of it. And I thought, shit, I don't, that's, that's not me, I, I don't wanna, that's not my life. And so I got out of there and that felt great. Uh, and some of my colleagues, I had colleagues around the world by that stage and I was doing some stuff in the States, they like, where are you going? We need you. I was like, catch you later. And I ended up living in the city, working for a large organisation as a writer and whatnot, um, Writing disabil- disability tool- toolkits for ANZ and stuff like that. And I was living in a 6 floor apartment in Southbank. And one day I realised the, sh- the shape of my life was I'd get up in this 6 storey apartment get in the lift and go down to the ground and then get on a tram and go sideways about two kilometers and then get in another lift and go up six stories to the office where I worked so the shape of my life was this big smile but the feeling of my life was a big frown <laughs> and um, so I got out of there and I found a share house and I wrote a list of criteria I want to try some gardening and, and this and that and a, and a friend called Sholto. about that time he was the one I was living in the, the apartment with he said hey Dan let's go out to the country this weekend we'll go and visit my mum and dad and my mum, sorry, in Ballarat. Da da da. So we, yeah, we we drove out this way and we stopped at someone some friend of his place for lunch. And I remember sitting around this big wooden table and kind of in, they were interesting people. Like like talked about things afterwards, like real things. It wasn't much small talk. I didn't pay much attention beyond that. But looking back, well, some years looking back, I realised that that table was the dining room in Maliadora. <laughs> and the people were Dave and Sue and Ollie. And I'm pretty sure I remember Ollie was like, wow, this kid's really high-powered and they're having these big conversations and you know critiquing each other and wow it's great and from sholta i'd got a bit of a feel he was on about peak oil and odom and blah 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 um anyway i wrote my sister criteria i ended up in this little flat in the backyard and um street in clayton called thomas street where the where the tenants cat and adrian were already turning a lot of the lawn into into vegetables i remember the land uh, the, the agent came and did an inspection once and she walked out into the backyard and she was like what he freaked out and I got on that bandwagon and I did a, did a PDC with Jeff Lawton and Bill Morrison at that time and we continued turning lawn into veggies and having local mowing contractors drop off grass clippings and making huge compost piles and at that same time one day I, I was getting into sourdough bread baking coming straight from the, the academy just using my mind you know and it was like holy shit I've got a like there's this thing sticking out the bottom of my head that's attached to these other things and like wow there's a body down here, and I started to do things that kind of engaged that. And and sourdough bread was amazing because you're 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 it's bodily, you know. You're kneading the leavening, kneading the 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 dough, and you're having to know a little bit about microbes and timing, and it's not just push a button and then you end up with something. Well, the first loaf, my friend's father dropped it in, on his foot, and it drew blood. It was a brick, but you get better at it if you stick with it, and. You've got something that most people, this was before the age of, I don't want to call it gluten-phobia, like, you know, you know what I'm saying, that most people would be like, yeah, bread, we eat bread, great. And and they'd appreciate it, as opposed to me spending hundreds and hundreds of hours writing articles to get published in an academic journal that three people or four people might ever read, you know? So I was creating something that hundreds of people could enjoy. Anyway, I'd eaten too much of the sourdough one day, and a jog t- turned into a walk, and it was twilight. And I'm going to nearby suburb called um, Springvale and I'm walking through the dusk and where am I and then I saw this sort of building with an arched doorway and it was a mud brick building and there was this warm light coming through this arched doorway and it just sort of beckoned me in it was like a vector beam it sucked me in and I, I stuck my head in and there was these South American guys playing pool drinking beer and just good vibes you know talking and stuff and I'd been to Mexico and had a bit of Spanish, and I always liked the idea of practicing more. So we made we made friends, and I, I came again, and they were called CODEMO, and they're a little community organization. A lot of them have been in the country for 20, 30 years as immigrants. And weren't feeling the um, the harmonious kind of integrated multi- multicultural vibes you hear on the government flyers and stuff. Yeah, you know, they were they were still feeling isolated and that they were um, unable to kind of access the mainstream. And we really hit it off. And I started we I taught them some we did some English classes and we'd go there and we'd dance and other friends would come. I did the PDC around that time, and my new South American crew, who I loved. I started to experience this rift because I suddenly had this group of friends that were into permaculture including a guy called Adam Grubb that I'd kind of heard about and was an acquaintance but we sat together on our PDC. We were starting to hang out and and I was spending more time with that set and sort of less time with the South American folk and I was also conscious they were eating a lot of crappy foods and a lot of them were overweight and diabetes and all that stuff. But I start to talk about it and they're like, oh, okay, gardening, right? Because, of course, El Salvador, Argentina, Chile, all these places where, where they, their connection to their agrarian past was uh, more recent. You know, they still knew the songs and had the art and we, you know, we were people of the land. So that was in them more than it was in me. And they're like, "All oh, right." right. And, and anyway, the idea came that we would put a veggie garden in the backyard of an elderly El Salvadorian woman called Vilma's uh, who lived in a government unit in uh, Dandenong. Well, oh yeah cool so we booked in a date and i invited adam and a few other friends that were into permaculture and damien showed up with a ute load of wood chips and some compost and we all bought seedlings and there's about 10 south americans and maybe six or seven um me and my permaculture friends and we had this discussion at the start because we're like oh yeah permaculture design let's try this out we all got together and talked about how we might lay out a garden and we voted on different configurations of paths i remember marta from argentina she voted for the cross, big Catholic. She's like, yeah, cross. But we ended up going with kind of a nice oval shape. And then there was an avocado that was right next to a house that needed tr- transplanting. And this, the, the South American guys, they grabbed tools and they started digging two holes simultaneously. They were so enthusiastic and I had to go, hey, there's only one tree. I'll just choose one of the holes. And anyway, we had a really lovely day and it was, it was great vibes and we danced, what soon became called the perma salsa at the end. And it was like, it's no brainer. Nelson, their kind of leader and me, um, we were like, yeah, let's have another one. So we had another one at Nelson's place into a chicken tractor and you we know, were trying out stuff like that. Uh, uh, a tire pond, <laughs> sheep mulching. And we were learning as we went. And like a year later visiting Bilma for a lot of the years she'd had a broken arm. So she literally couldn't maintain the garden and only water it. And it was cranking with food and she was giving food to all her friends. And you know, well, sheep mulching it was a really good solution here and stuff like that and so the momentum of those picked up and then at some point they started being called permablitzers and and now that's there's maybe been a couple of hundred of those events in melbourne and it's spread to other parts of the world and adam's still part of it and a bunch of other people organize it so that happened so what, one thing that happened there was i was i was in part responsible for creating something that's helped a lot of people enter permaculture in a in a really easy non intimidating way Oh, so you're having this event where people come and they're going to help with your garden? Sounds good. So that that was that was a part of the the story. And we decided to start a business. What would it mean to do this stuff as a job? And it was a new industry. There weren't many, well, we didn't really know anyone doing what we were thinking about. And there were seven of us at the initial discussions, and that shrunk down to four by the time we hit the go button. Started a company called Varietable Gardens, which we officially launched in February 2009 no idea what we were doing we'd know n- nothing about running a business we we're just cutting our teeth with permaculture with design and here we were putting in veggie beds and starting to get called out to council things and all this kind of stuff so there's a lot of chaos and, and over the next five six years we probably went through, through something somewhere between three and four hundred design consultancy projects mostly in ret- rectangular suburban backyards where people wanted veggies and fruit trees some herbs, chickens, that sort of thing. And so we, we, we're cutting our teeth, we're getting our hours in, we're getting better at it. We're evolving our own design process understandings. We started teaching permaculture, You know, one hour talks, two hours, one day intro. Eventually we started running a permaculture design course. I met Di, it was just before Veg started, and she called, we helped her make the decision to buy 15 acres. Um, and I was fresh out of a Bill Morris and Jeff Lawton PDC. So what did we do on the sloping 15 acres? Dug a shitload of massive swales. It was a bit of a complex situation. The husband wasn't present. The upshot was that Di herself didn't like the swales. Even though, you know, it's not like we, she just woke up one morning and they were there. We dug a little test one and it was go, go, go. And But but my client analysis and skills were virtually absent. Anyway, it was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> Almost all the swales got bulldozed in. Because the husband then came back on the scene and was trying to mow the property, and it's pretty hard to—you don't want to drive a tractor sideways on a slope. You want to drive it up and down the slope, and that's quite hard to do. these whacking great big swales every 20 meters, and that was a big deal for me because you know I, I had all this confidence. I, I mean, I had—I checked in with people, and it was—it was quite an intricate and interesting design where, you, with the flick of some pipes, you could turn the swales into diversion drains and and whatnot. But ultimately, there was a mismatch between what we did and what the client situation and da da da. And of course for me, that I'm quite a sensitive person and that was a real blow and that triggered a year where I was pretty bloody depressed. What the hell have I done? What I'm, I'm capable of being part of doing things that weren't really very good. So that, that was a, a big time of reflection for me. And towards the end of that year of depression, Rosemary Morrow had already connected with and hassled enough to let me hang out with her and ran a PDC with her in Armidale bit earlier on she said hey dan i'm off to africa do you want to come and she kind of dragged me to africa with her and we ran the first two pdc's in ethiopia and then started a permaculture project in uganda um so i owe rosemary more a lot you know she really helped me bring bring me out of that phase of my life as a result of going there i met my wife i've got kids now and learned a lot from her as a mentor we came back veg was happening i got i got into that big time i didn't have much going on in my life i didn't have a life Veg became my life. So I was effectively a workaholic for the first few years. There's four chiefs, no Indians. Chaos, four directors. Within a couple of years, two directors were left. Adam and I are left standing. One day Adam says, Dan, either something changes or I'm gone. I'm not enjoying this. It's detracting from my quality of life. I'm waking up in the middle of the night, worrying about customer, customer's irrigation issues. This business has become a monster that's consuming my life it's the master, I'm the slave, it's, it's not good. Where at that stage I was like, it was like my, it was almost my, like my life raft at that stage. But I heard what he said, and at that time, luckily I'd done a workshop with a holistic management educator called Kurt Gadsier, holistic management approach developed by a, call, a guy called Alan Savory, which had something to do with decision-making and making decisions that don't mean your co-directors want to leave the business same time working with clients i was starting to realize there were some issues that i hadn't learned from permaculture that i needed to get my head around and just learn how to negotiate in, in design projects and one was reading people how do i really authentically connect with people and figure out what they want you know i'm having experiences here where i'm giving them what i think they want but it turns out not to be what they want at all and all the rest and i was realized there was a gap there was a crack opening and initially i used holistic management as a band-aid to try and patch that crack up we applied this to veg and it's, it, it saved veg. It helped us turn veg around in fairly short order into something that was no longer the master, that was, was something that served our quality of life and became a pleasure to be part of. And we got to a point where Adam, for a while, he was still like, yeah, it's it's good now, but I still carry resentment from, when, from the earlier suffering. And then we came past that and he was like, on balance, veg is great, I'm glad to be part of it. Which is a good thing to hear from your co-director you depend on. Other cracks started to appear. One I alluded to yesterday, which was this just, I'm not really, I just, I need. We need a process here. Mollison's methods and people going on about this and this, and we just need. A, we need a process around there. Then that time, I spent some time with Dave Jackie and learned about his process, which was amazing, and we've we've gained so much from. And it was like it was kind of like another band aid. Oh, yep, yeah, we can sort of make that fit with our understanding of permaculture, and it still kind of hangs together as a coherent whole. I dipped into the writings of Christopher Alexander along the way. This book was on a friend's bookshelf, The Timeless Way of Building written in the 70s. I started to read a bit more. He had a book called The Pattern Language, then I read a book called The Battle for the Life and Beauty of the Earth, which led me into his four-volume masterwork, The Nature of Order, volume two of which changed my life forever. Christopher Alexander, he just sort of tore all the band-aids away and all those cracks that i have been trying to patch up, I I realised them for what they were and they were indicators that the thing wanted to crack, it needed to crack, for me personally, and so it was a bit like that Leonard Cohen line about the cracks of where the light gets in or out or whatever. So I entered this process of realising, OK, there's no quick fix here. If I'm going to feel like I have a process with integrity that, that really resonates with everything, including what I learned at university about the falsity of a, of a rigid segregation or split between thinking and doing, which I was realising was that split was embedded in all the permaculture design process formalizations that I'd come across. You think on paper at a conceptual level you observe then you think conceptually and to some detail make all your mistakes on paper and now you do that was starting to smell a bit off to me that whole idea alexander pointed out this aspect of that in a very clear way and how i'd already talked about i'd realized there's all these splits in the false and soluble issue how do you join these broken parts together again and i was starting to realize that that mentality had infused permaculture you know it's a broken world we need to reintegrate we need to reconnect the broken pieces we need to assemble the elements into whole systems again and i was realizing hang on that's got the same whiff about it and alexander making this point that that's not how nature works you know the way a living organism grows you you'll you'll hear you all started as a single cell you're not an assemblage of a, of fingers and arms and heart and you know these things weren't separate parts that were joined to create the whole. The opposite of that happened. You were a single cell and a little crinkle emerged in that cell. It differentiated into two cells and so on. And at some point another little crinkle emerged in this this blob that was you. Pre-fetal or early fetal you. And down the track that crinkle became your spine. Much further along there was this amorphous little blob that was destined to become your hand. And then within that blob there was a differentiation that gradually emerged where one thing differentiated into two things. So one blob differentiated into some some crests and valleys, crests and valleys, crests and valleys, which became your hand. So uh, starting to pay a little bit of attention to how nature creates itself, I was finding a harsh discrepancy between permaculture's self-understandings of how to create nature-mimicking systems and how nature itself creates these systems. And so I reached, a, I kind of hit a wall and I thought, geez, this is big. I want to follow this and listen to this and listen to these voices and get better at this. And right now I'm not feeling, I'm not finding these conversations happening inside permaculture. And as I said yesterday, I considered sort of, I don't know if I ever would have been able to leave. I don't know if I would have been able to reach exit velocity at that point. I was so caught up in it. But, uh, you know, what what does this mean? You know, am I going to go and become part of different communities that are really invested in this question of what what would an authentic nature mimicking process look like feel like um, along the way i was realizing too as i say feeling that that was another culturally wide split between heart and head between intuition and feeling and emotion and the rational intellectual conscious mind which had become the supreme master and dominator of you know the big significant decisions about where the highways go and how buildings are placed and how cities are laid out and the The issues inherent in that. The intuitive was considered this I don't know subjective kind of wishy-washy domain that had no place in real science and real construction projects and that was starting to rub me up the wrong way as well. Now that I've discovered I had a body sticking out the bottom of my head and there was a heart in there and I was having feelings that seemed to have some kind of relevance to the processes I was being part of. Anyway the upshot is that at that point somewhere around there I thought what would it mean to somehow Find others that are already having this conversation, or and I think somewhere in there I did find Yasha Raw, who'd come to pretty much exactly the same point a decade or two earlier, but was fairly unknown, was over in Germany. I was getting some of these flavors from Dave Jackie when I talked to him, even though when I read his books, as I've been discussing with him recently, what you see is is still a, a flowchart, linear sequence process that could that can fit in with a mechanistic understanding of design process. On that note. It's mean, become clearer for me more recently, but I was realising that this idea that a process is a linear sequence of steps that you can draw up in a flow chart, we had a flowchart—that itself is, is problematic, and it comes from a factory context where f- the whole concept of a flowchart came from the factory floor. How do we how do we map the process where the stuff goes into this machine and then comes out of it transformed, and goes on the conveyor belt to the next machine? You know, so the clients come on the conveyor belt into our goals articulation process, and they then a a statement comes out and then that feeds into the next machine which is observe the site, which feeds into the next machine, this sort of linear sequence when in reality I knew that all these things are happening at once and, and it's not enough just to draw lots of arrows between all the machines or all the bits in your process, somehow we're barking up the wrong tree. So I started making permaculture stronger which I thought well if I am on my way out it'll be a parting gift but who knows maybe permaculture is ready for this kind of conversation and it turns out it was and it is! And I was hugely grateful that very early on, David engaged with some of the stuff that I was exploring and sharing in a really supportive way and with a beautiful energy that I needed at that stage. I really needed to feel that energy from, I don't know, within permaculture and from significant people within permaculture, which was an energy of, we haven't got it. It's not finished. We don't have it sewn up. We don't have all the answers, which you've all seen inside permaculture. Be part of the permaculture revolution. We're going to save the world. We've got it all. If only we were in in charge. I went to a convergence in Tasmania a few years ago, Bob Brown, at the end of his keynote speech, he said, if you lot were in charge, we'd be fine, but you're not. And I thought, if we lot were in charge, we'd be fucked. (laughs) You know? We would not be fine. I was finding that whole mentality really problematic. You know, the permaculture crusaders, let's, let's become a permaculture army. We've got all the solutions. We've got all the answers. And I was thinking, we don't even have a coherent process that is constitutionally capable of delivering on our aspirations. We've got some work to do. And David was an embodiment of that energy of like, great, bring it on. you know. I was like, bring it on, bring it on. I'm in. And I feel more invested and more excited to be part of permaculture than I ever have. And excited to now be bringing different people that have been exploring aspects of this this big thing, this big conundrum or paradox and and these issues for a long time and feeling this energy around let's do it it's huge you know i I thought i had it pretty much sewn up you know we'd we'd been iterating i'll show you soon and i'll show you a bit later inside a veg design process we're drawn on dave we're drawn on dave jackie and all these other people had fed into it darren doherty who was a mentor of mine and is now a colleague and friend rosemary all these others would you know it was like let's just integrate this stuff and this stuff and this stuff but what we were doing you know we were trying to assemble this thing and it was it was not feeling so good and christopher alexander realized made me realize man this is a multi-generational challenge but it's the most exciting thing i could imagine being part of understanding and embodying and being a part of processes that themselves are alive and have the capacity to generate life and to participate in life which for me really is a big part of the whole point of being human. You know, what would it mean to be authentically human? To wake up and be who we really are, which is not unwitting kind of half-asleep participants in this, in rolling out and perpetuating and regurgitating this deathly mechanistic set of assumptions that, as I said, is not a simple matter of saying, oh, I'll just pluck that assumption out and replace it with another one. It's a much deeper deal than that. And it's hard work, you know, but I've started to do this with some of these influences and, and, and what I started to taste in terms of what's possible inside a process that's even a tiny bit more healthy and what comes out the other end of it. And I'm hoping to share some flavors of that with you on Friday when we go down to Wood End, it meant that uh, there's kind of no turning back. And one thing that happened, uh, I think it was last year or the year before in New Zealand, there was a national gathering and I presented some of these ideas and I waved my arms and raised my voice, acted way out of character and took a huge risk. But the elders of the New Zealand permaculture movement received that with humility and gratitude. And as a result of that, there's now a very strong making permaculture stronger movement in New Zealand where there's this spontaneous, small, agile, hui or gatherings where the folk, we had one on design process for three days. There's been ones on professional permaculture, on permaculture education, most recent on social permaculture. And there's a real excitement and energy of like, yeah, let's make permaculture stronger. Let's not just assume it's got it all sewn up and just keep regurgitating whatever it is the founders came up with they were mortals the point is that what whatever it's we're talking about something pretty big like gradually transforming the the most deepest assumptions about what it means to be alive and what 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 would be possible in terms of of re-entering the space of something like indigeneity or at least the space of deeply belonging to place and, and and all the rest of it Let's get that happening. And that energy is there in New Zealand right now, which is so exciting. And lo- kind of like it's it's got a life of its own. I'm, I'm not really that involved. And as part of this, we've, I've started to be part of a, a group that's emerging around what we're calling living design process. What would a process that itself is alive, we pull it out into the foreground and, and we understand it better and it itself is alive and us able to create life. Um, what would that look like? And that's feeling... I wasn't sure how that would go. If that would become something kind sort of separate to permaculture, because I was conscious I didn't want to be the the dickhead that's like, I've got a better permaculture design process, which is just inviting unnecessary conflict. And it's you know it's not about that at all. So it's got a different name, but really I feel like it's exploring the space of what what would a design process understanding or the beginnings of them, or just the vaguest kind of directional hints. What would that look like in terms of something that could really authentically serve permaculture and honor its its aspirations its ethics and its principles and legitimately deliver solutions and and actual systems and stuff in the world that work because i don't know how many of you are present to this and how how biased my perception is but a lot i know i've seen and tasted and felt a lot of permaculture projects including ones that i've alluded to that i personally was heavily involved in have failed dismally a lot of them end up in systems that aren't really that life-filled you know they can be clunky they can feel like an assemblage of elements because that's what they are because that was the framing idea that was driving the process that generated these systems alexandra invites us into a space where rather than seeing this newtonian idea that well we've got an empty site or oh there's some stuff there we'll map that there's some trees and a house and a chicken now let's grab some elements and shove them all in and wriggle them around until they're feeling good bang as opposed to this is a three-dimensional space this living fabric that's already there, how do we really deeply immerse in it and honour it and hear all the voices present, human and non-human, and, and then gradually work with this whole, it's already a whole, it already has parts, how do we work with it and gradually transform it? So that's a few flavours of where I've been and where I've got to. How was that? Does that, I'd be curious, I guess, any of that kind of resonate? Or, does it, or you, does it, do you think I'm a wacko? Or <laughs> We know that Can we already? say both? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, if you said both, what you what, what that means is you're a wacko too, right? Like you say, that resonated, and you're a wacko. <laughs> By implication, you're a wacko too. Yeah, I, I think um, just honestly, uh, it's good to hear that there was actually no you know, process to begin with, and you actually have to go through and you know navigate your way through this unventured, you know, terrain mm. to
2: speak, and you've come up with some sort of process now that you're comfortable with. But it's good to know that yeah, you always start off. With, A bit lost,
1: really. Yeah. Well, I'm still, I'm still so lost, and that's the thing. It's not like, oh, you know, so and so got it wrong, and now we've got it right. It's like we've just starting. It's like we're stumbling around in the misty foothills of this mountain range. We've got no idea how big it is. And let's just find a few friends and kind of get on the same page here, and and realize that it's there. What would it mean to get organized enough to actually start to to move up? What's waiting for us? And just to taste some of that. And I'm talking about processes that deeply honour. And because they never separate, they don't need to try and reintegrate or assemble intuition and feeling and, and deep intention and thorough immersion in, in the reality of what's going on and and breaking out of this idea that you think things through thoroughly and you do your master plan and then you implement them. Breaking out of that into a space where the thinking and the doing are inside this ever unfolding generative process where a single Totally integrated whole system is gradually being transformed toward life and beauty and wholeness. But it's just it's it's all inklings, you know. That I, I know that I can't imagine what's possible. But you know, every month, every year that goes by, it's like the mist is clearing.
2: Yeah. Dan, can I reflect on some of these things that linking some of them to my own journey? Because I, of course, watched in the eighties this whole design process unfold and was highly critical of it. And in eighty-three when I set up my consultancy business I thought long and hard about whether I would call it permaculture. And then in eighty four I went to the first international convergence and I went with a paper on the permaculture in the bush case study, because I was a bit obsessed about is there any documentation of like what people have done and Partly, what was the process, and also another one on reading landscape, which I was obsessed with. That this was one of the core skills that you know, was complementary to my knowledge. And I, I came to that saying, "Wow, there's all these amazing people doing all these things who think like me. Yeah, this is still worthwhile." Started teaching on design courses after being tested by people in the Uh, through the late eighties and in in 1990 I co-taught on uh, one and then with uh, some other teachers and then one with Lee Harrison who was one of the most experienced uh, co-teachers I then felt I had a handle on what the PDC was and there was a a few areas where I thought well there's a few things really lacking and one of those was design process I made that effort to sort of try and integrate what I'd learned through experience over the years, but again it was still trying to patch and add to that process like that lens of strategic thinking like mm. the, mm. the lens of uh, reading landscape of actually trying to properly understand what already existed uh, genuinely engaging with where uh, people are people at i used to say to people on consultancies uh slightly confronting you are your land's biggest asset and biggest liability <laughs> and uh, and especially that lens of landscape planning as elementary and different to site planning.
0: and a lot of people
2: said that that was those design courses in the 90s that we held here in Hepburn were more like advanced design courses but I felt that huge dissatisfaction with what was happening in terms of design process. But I think everyone has been through that and worked out their own process. And what my observation is is that people naturally either because they were design professionals with in architecture, landscape architecture, or they were working with people like that, or those body of Practices were out and People had actually drawn those. So in that sense, it's it started from a completely naive, open process that then naturally adopted a lot of what was normal practice, and and a lot of people got quite good at that. Good and often better than the university trained and an apprentice design professionals. And I think that was part of the interview you did with Robin. France with Bowden you don't need to go shifting, you've got all the real experience, the valuable um, piece of paper. So I, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, Alexander's critique has always been there, and it's interesting that, yes, it's had this sort of big influence in a way, but it hasn't shifted the design for it. It was too radical a, a critique, even though yeah, there's a whole body of work of his own and other people who followed that process. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it's been tiny in its attacks on uh, design. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah one thing I might just respond to that a little bit and Kerry you asked if we were going to cover other design fr- frameworks and I might speak to those briefly because I, 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 I'm drawing a parallel in my mind because I, I was kind of caught up in psychology for a while as a discipline and one thing I realised is that, well actually others had realised and I learned about but resonated with my own experience was that psychology was a young discipline when it started and the pressure was on. Biology and physics were miles ahead, they were the science, you know they were proper sciences. And, oh, there's this whole new region we've kind of been neglecting. Let's call it psychology. It was behind the eight ball. And, it, of course, it had its own unique subject matter. But rather than honoring its own subject matter and developing understandings of what that subject matter was, what its actual authentic units were, what what appropriate processes, methods, strategies, techniques, whatever, would serve that unique subject matter, it pulled a dodgy cut and paste maneuver. And it grabbed um, answers to those questions from physics, from biology for example in, in biology the, the the idea of stimulus and response you know like you tap the thing on the leg and it jumps that was imported wholesale into psychology and cre- has created no end of, of issue in terms of trying to impose a foreign process kind of understanding on a different subject matter in an inappropriate way as opposed to saying what what would understandings that grow out of this actual subject matter look like and I se- i've seen that same pattern in permaculture and to me that's what you're alluding to david and last year it was it was a mate it was like oh to hear you saying you had been through the same process which no one knows about right That you you were it was kind of this vague kind of empty space and then what happened was the copy and paste like let's bring in sabradim and obradim and this that and the other design process from engineering or landscape architecture or whatever it is and you know, like, we need something let's try and package what it is in, 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 inside this, this these flowchart linear framings that buy into a lot of the separations i talking about as opposed to what i see is the one of the most important and authentic quests of permaculture which is let's dre- let's generate process understandings that grow out of our subject matter which is not in- imbibing the mechanistic residue of-, of assumptions that have built the the very systems that are fucking up the world wholesale and-, and that are triggering the genesis of movements like permaculture what would it mean to to co-create and come to understandings of process that where it's always 100% about what's a process that serves the authentic subject matter of permaculture which is the big question of what does it mean to, to participate in and, and be creating nature-mimicking systems and take... if we want to live up to our promise or deliver on our promise or our, our stated intention to mimic nature then the place to start is to try, go, even try a little bit to try and mimic the processes nature uses to create itself which is that distinction I was making yesterday Like biomimicry for example, it goes and says, oh yeah, look at the surface of a bee, let's copy and paste that and make Velcro. Or, oh that's a clever, look at the tessellations on that lizard's back, let's copy and paste that and and come up with some clever way of arranging solar panels on a roof. That's great, but it's nowhere near as great as what I'm talking about, which is like, let's look at the processes that generated the surface of the lizard, and the bee, and the wave, and the rock, and the forest, and the tree, and the starfish. Let's start to gain some process literacy in terms of how the hell that freaking amazing, diverse, beautiful, hyper adapted, you know, stunningly efficient and all the rest, these configurations and patterns, how they came into being in the first place and ask what would it mean for us to bring even a taste of that into the processes we're bringing to people because the sad reality I realized was that people were waving the permaculture flag and saying, you know, we're offering you something different. But they're, they're offering something that's got a different label, but it's the same old crap. It's the same old process understandings that are, that are screwing the world up. And I thought, holy shit, is there a potential that permaculture can become so self-deluded that it ends up perpetuating the very issues it, it deeply believes that it's trying to ameliorate or get away from? It's not a small thing, right? It's like a big deal. Like this, is a, this is an existential crisis, what well, was for me. But I feel like it's an existential crisis that permaculture itself has to face and a mentor of mine in a space called Adaptive Leadership, he says, Dan, organisms, species, ecosystems, living systems in general, they're constantly coming to forks in the path, where it's decision time, adapt or die. Dave's just going to respond to an aspect of that and tie it in with the point he was making yesterday and then I'm going to do a little exercise. I'm off my high horse now. It's different vibes. <laughs> it's different Shifted vibes. space. Off my, off my soapbox, I it. <laughs>
0: high yeah. horse soapbox. The
2: box. enthusiasm was very enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, you're an amazing storyteller, and I wish that was recorded.
0: It was. It was. Uh, amazing. Oh, it was recorded? Oh. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Kerry. Victoria. I wanted to reflect a, a couple of things which I think uh, that I said yesterday that I think might anchor it to process or where do we start? And I I talked about design for yourself as opposed to design as a professional. And one of the strongest element of my critique over the years from the beginning was this absurd idea that Bill was putting three people through a two week process and they would come out the other side as professional designers, uh, in a new field that as yet didn't exist, with no infrastructure or technical support, uh, or even any of the any uh, living examples of what was being talked about, and that I saw permaculture design as something we do for ourselves. So it was about a culture of self-reliance versus, a culture of enabled replication, professional scale expansion. So that when you design for yourself, not only are you taking responsibility for the mistakes and gaining the benefit from the brilliant things that happen, you're dealing with all of those holes that get missed or shunted away once you're engaged in some sort of professional arm's length process, because then you're in society, which has all got these separate segments, and that the realities just don't allow you, even, even though you might be passionate uh, about that. So there is something not like this is just playing when we do stuff for ourselves. It's actually the core of where we develop a a process that can we make it work for just me here as a stepping stone. Can we do that at a household scale within resources that we're prepared to allocate and make those uh, mistakes and live with that and be in that as because it is a living process. So I always used to say when people came to Meliodora and they said, oh, I want you to design this for me. I said, I can help design the skeleton within which you might create living permaculture. I cannot design permaculture for you. I can't. So one of those answers for me was to sort of, and this was partly within the economic and social realities, was to be able to go out in a one-day advisory site visit engage with the people engage with the site and suggest some of the things about those core big decisions that they were going to make anyway you know where's the house going um where's the dam just those like the the biggest things that emerged out of uh that situation And in a way it felt like this is like just really ridiculous but it was a sort of a contribution uh, uh, into that process i mean there were other reasons doing that there weren't there wasn't the technology of being able to generate plans and base maps and that at low cost that there are now and, and whatever and so that starting process of doing it for yourself and then saying can i maybe help some other people do this is a starting point and it is a process of or learning finding what your own process is
1: well i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope it was useful to hear maybe a bit more about my story in terms of what led me to to getting involved in making permaculture stronger initially and some of the different themes and flavours that I've been focusing on. Um, it was obviously wonderful to hear from David about it, but, you know, I, I'm not aware of him having written much or, or shared much previously about his experiences getting started as a professional designer and, and things like even <laughs> David Holmgren thinking carefully about whether he wanted to, to w- work under the, the name permaculture when he got started. Fancy that also the theme around developing process literacy in the context of your own situation your own household your own life before then extending out and um, and bringing what you've learned to others love that love that uh, that theme if you want to follow up on David you can visit his website which is the home of Holmgren design and Melidora um, the place where David and Sue live that's at Holmgren.com.au uh, as always, if you want to check out more of the same sort of stuff um, at Making Permaculture Stronger, the website's makingpermaculturestronger.net, where you're always welcome to leave a comment uh, or send through a message. I thought I might mention that, that the Making Permaculture Stronger is a lot broader uh, these days than, than design process. There's a lot happening that I'm not involved in either resonating with or, or, or using the idea of Making Permaculture Stronger as a a medium or or platform to host those conversations. And you'll be hearing more about some of those other um, topics and themes in upcoming blog posts and podcasts. Well, I thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed, and I'll catch you again in future.